The question we've been exploring, uh, we're exploring today is this. How does Jesus want us to react to persecution and opposition in our lives? That is a question we are trying to answer. We started answering that question this morning, and um, we are in the book of Mark, aren't we, in Mark 13. And uh, we said that Jesus is in his final week in Jerusalem. It is a Tuesday, and he has just left the temple for the final time, and now he sat at the Mount of Olives. And the basic introduction, those four verses in Mark chapter 13, tells us that. And the question that the disciples have come to ask Jesus, in verse 3 to 4, uh, just to remind you, there are those two questions they're asking Jesus. Uh, when will the temple be destroyed? And how are we going to know it is coming? And we said the underlying assumptions of their question concerning what Jesus has predicted, the destruction of the temple, is that they believe the destruction of the temple means the end of the world. And so that's what's on their mind. That's what they want Jesus uh, to explain. And so all of from verse 5 to verse 37, really, of Mark 13, is Jesus trying to unpack that. And in responding to them, uh, Jesus is making it clear that uh, some of the issues uh, he, he mentions there concerns what will happen to the disciples in their lifetime. And some of the issues there concerns what will happen to them after uh, AD 70, after the destruction of the temple. Uh, this morning, as I said, we started exploring that section, didn't we? Uh, verse 9 to verse uh, 13. We looked at verse 9 to 11. And now I want us to look at verse 12 to verse 13. How does Jesus expect us to react to persecution and or opposition in our lives? Verse 12 to 13 says this, And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents, and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. I think if we were to summarize what Jesus is saying there, we can just say what Jesus is teaching there is that Jesus expects us to stick with him. He expects us to stick with him. In times of opposition, in times of deep persecution, he expects you and I who truly trust in Jesus to stick with him. Why do I say that? Because of verse 13. Look at the last sentence in verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is saying, no matter what opposition you face for following me, do not divert from doing it. Stick with me, even if it leads you to die physically. Now, you've heard that before, haven't you? I'm sure you have, right? And if you've been going through Mark, we know that that's what Jesus has been saying. But again, he wants to remind us that following him means death to self, and that might mean even dying physically. All of us need to be reminded of that uh, because it is difficult to stick to Jesus, and it's difficult because it's difficult to stick to anything. That's why it's difficult to stick with Jesus. It is not natural for us in life to stand firm. In fact, the world tells us that uh, it is better to bend than to break. That's what the world says. Because standing firm is costly. Standing against a bully at work uh, could mean losing promotion. 
They could. And so many people at work don't mention anything if they see a bully because they don't want their job to be on the line. Uh, sticking um, with Jesus in your life may mean ending a friendship you have treasured for some time. Because you've realized now that that friendship isn't working towards you growing in Christ. It may mean, if you're married, that your marriage becomes more strained when you stick for Jesus in your marriage. Perhaps your husband or your wife, your wife is not very devoted to Christ. They may be a believer, but they're not devoted. And you sticking just for Jesus in your marriage may mean it becomes more, more strained. Sticking with Jesus against sin in our society may mean receiving abuse online now. It may mean hatred from our neighbors. It may mean, it may mean you know, being taken to the police, even nowadays. Because we're telling the world to repent. So sticking with Jesus is hard and costly. And so how do we stick with Jesus in face of persecution and opposition? Well, two things here. The first thing is that you must stick with Jesus against your life. You must stick with Jesus against your life. What I mean by that is that you must keep following Jesus even if it costs you everything. You must keep following with Jesus even if it means losing your family, if it means losing the acceptance of the world, or even losing your physical life. Verse 12 to verse 13 says this, And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all, underline that, by all for my name's sake. Jesus is saying to his followers, there may come a time when you must endure the prospect of losing your life at the hands of your loved ones. That's the first thing that strikes me when I read that. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Some people try and spiritualize these verses like he's talking about fellow believers. Of course not. We have no fathers in Christ. Right? He's talking about real people here who will put us to death our loved ones. Now, for us to know just how shocking what Jesus is saying is here, we must understand something about the family in the time of Jesus. Because it's not like today. The family in first century of Israel is not like the family today. In ancient Israel, the family you belong to comes first. It's important you understand that. Your wishes come second. This is a collectivist society, not an individualist society like today. You are expected to live for the honor of the family. You have to understand that. That's why they are arranged marriages at this time. It's that sort of society. You don't get to say who you marry. The family decides that. Because it's the family's honor, it's the family's reputation that matters. Most importantly, and this is important, your true family is always your blood relations in a collectivist society. They take priority over all other human relationships. What I mean by this is this. For a married man, your ultimate loyalty is not to your wife. Your ultimate loyalty is to your parents and siblings. They are blood. They are your blood relations. The woman you've married or the man you've married is an outsider to that family. This is how life is in the ancient Near East. 
And when we understand that, it makes it clear why spouses are not mentioned in verse 12. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you are living in the West, and you're wondering, what about wives? How come the wives are not rising up? Or the husbands are not? Why is Jesus not concerned about that? Jesus is not concerned about that because those in the near ancient Near East, they, are, they involve weaker form of loyalty. Your closest family are those you share blood with. So Jesus is not talking about even mentioning betrayal marriage because in this society, marital bonds are not culturally as strong as blood relations. The worst thing that can happen to you, believe it or not, in the ancient Near East, is not your wife betraying you, no. The worst thing that can happen is your own blood, your father, your brother, your son, betraying you to the authorities. So imagine the shock when Jesus says to them, your family will help you, will put you to death. And brother will, write, will deliver brother over to death. They must be so shocked to hear this. The most intimate relationships they can think of are being fractured by the gospel. And Jesus is saying, Jesus, what Jesus is saying actually is that Mark 8, verse 34 to 38, will become literal for you. Whoever who follow me must deny himself, take up the cross and follow me. He's saying, this is what taking up the cross looks like. It may mean you being handed over to death by the people you value most. And I think as they hear this, they must be so frightened. Because Jesus is in effect saying to them, Remember James and John who we've met already? Jesus is saying to James and John, there are no thrones waiting for you in this life. You, you are looking for thrones? No, they are not waiting for you in this life. What waits for you is death, John. What waits for you, James, is beheading. For John, what waits for him is a long time at the highland of Patmos. And Jesus is asking the question to them, do you still want to follow me? This is where you're headed. Do you still want to follow me? You know, I love the Lord Jesus because he's so honest with us. I said that this morning. He's not trying to sell the Christian life like, oh, you know, this is, and, and, and gloss over stuff. No, he's not doing that. He's laying it down in raw data. Death awaits you. Do you want in? Do you still, do you still think I am worth following? We must praise Jesus for his honesty here. Because to be honest, many of us find it uncomfortable to open our hearts and share the truth with others. I don't know about you, but I don't like telling people the hard truth. I get worried about how they're going to respond to when I tell them something they don't want to hear. And so usually I'll go on for a while and just try to get there, start from somewhere far and just build up the case slowly. Eventually, yeah, okay, either way that they get it. I just don't want to put it out there. Well, why, why am I like that? Why are you like that? We are like that because we want to be loved. I want you guys to love me. <laughs> I do. I, I, I hope you want me to love you, right? Uh, we all are like that. We want other people to love us, right? But Jesus is not like that. Jesus, he, he has all the love he needs in himself. But more than that, he wants to share this love out. And he loves his followers and wants them to know the truth. He knows we love others by telling them the truth. 
And the truth is telling us here is that sticking with me will tear you from your family. But it is worth it. He has no doubt, so he can put the ad stuff in there. Because he knows it's good for us. And he's saying, sticking with me will tear you from your family. Now, my guess as you sit here this evening, you are not facing the prospect of death from your family members for trusting in Jesus. You know, I challenge you that. There's no one here who's facing the prospect of death because you've turned to Jesus. And so when you read verse 12, it seems very alien to you. Your wife is not trying to put you to death. In fact, most of, nearly all of you here, you're married to godly women, right? And vice versa, right? You are not in Iran. Our brothers and sisters from Muslim nations constantly face the risk of being betrayed to the government by their beloved ones, by their family members. Why? Because in those cultures, the family comes first. Turning to Christ means you dishonoring the family, the family's name. We know about honor killings, don't we? That, that happens to many believers around the world. But you see, for us here, we don't face that threat. But we do face something else as well. For us, sticking with Jesus in our family means, I think, that our non-believing family members, we are on the lower scale, true, but it's still a cost. It would mean that our non-believing family and friends become distant from us. In a way, we do die an emotional death. We do die a social death as a result of turning to Christ. When they oppose our faith, when they don't share our faith, we don't die physically, but we die emotionally towards them and we die certainly socially. I don't think we should treat that as a small thing. That's not a small thing. You know, it is hard when those we love deeply do not share our greatest love. It is hard when we realize they deeply hate Jesus. They may not use those words, but they do. They stand against Christ. It's hard when you realize that, when you understand what's at stake. And that means, because they hate Jesus, it means there is a part of you that they can't stand. Do you get that? There's a part of you, there's someone who lives in you that they can't stand. They love us in so many way, wonderful ways, but they hate the Jesus in us. They can't stand him in us. And that makes it harder for a father who loves Jesus to enjoy time together with a son who hates Jesus. It's hard. Because there will always be a war between the dad and the son. There's always an area they can't enjoy and share together. That the, the father longs to share with the son. It's Jesus. There's always a dislocation in terms of relationship, where they, where, where, how they can relate to one another. It makes it hard for a husband who loves Jesus to be open with a wife who does not know the Lord. Distrust and arguments can become normal in such families. We constantly find ourselves having to choose between Jesus and our family members. And this may continue on until we leave this world. And it is heartbreaking. I wonder as you sit here this evening, is that your situation? Are you, do you, do you, does this relate to you? Do you, do you see some of this 
difficulties of sticking with Jesus that you have had to experience in your own life. And you're still here, of course. You're still following Christ. You're still pursuing him. And I've put the situation here between believer and non-believer, but I would even also often say we could have spouses that are backslidden. And we are walking and enduring Christ and growing in Christ. Again, the distance is the same. Family members that have backslidden, they still know Christ, but it's the same issue that crops up. It's hard. It's painful. Is that your situation here? Where Jesus is saying, continue to stick with me. The temptation is that you compromise. But Jesus says, don't do it. Don't be like them. Stick with me. Put me above your family. That's what Jesus is saying. No matter the cost, he says. And it's not just our family. Jesus wants us to stick with him regardless of the hatred and opposition from the rest of society. Look at verse 13 there. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. The sad reality is that human beings are opposed to the person, work, and message of Jesus. The world is an enemy of the good news of Christ. We should never forget that. We should never dismiss it. We should never underplay this point. The world, by and large, does not want us. It would prefer Christianity to disappear tomorrow. That's the basic disposition of every non-believer. Friends we enjoy rugby with. Those we play chess with. Those we, our neighbors who we get along very well and many other things. But when it comes to Christ, first between Christ and no Christ, or rather there's no Christ. You know, Samuel Rutherford says this. If we were not strangers here, the dogs of the world would not bark at us. If we were not strangers here, the dogs of the world would not bark at us. In other words, we are hated by the world because this world is not our home. We are aliens and strangers in this world. When it comes, now when we think about this hatred of the world towards us, again, it may seem very alien as you see it. You say, well, I don't really quite feel this hatred, to be honest. I get a very warm man and Christian friends, and they never said a bad word about Jesus. They're indifferent, but yeah. I just want to make the point here that the Bible says what the Bible says, and it's true. In terms of applying it to your own life, what we need to realize here is that when we talk about the hatred of the world in practice towards us, uh, it is not a point. It's like a, we are all on a spectrum of that. On one extreme, we have the society, the whole society, literally hating Christians. This is the experience of underground churches in North Korea. The whole society in North Korea, if you read about there, is like a big brother. The entire society. They're using surveillance. They're, using, they're doing that in China as well. But the surveillance, they use human surveillance. People must report family members. It's, it's, it's George Orwell type stuff. 1984. The entire society is surveilling Christians, reporting on everything they do, handing them over, sending them to these death camps. 
This is the experience of Christians in certain parts of India and Pakistan where militant vigilante groups are patrolling neighborhoods looking for followers of Jesus in order to kill them. This is what we saw with Asia Abib, the entire mob in Pakistan. She had, she couldn't, she had to literally be set aside, for, to, to removed from the country. That's one extreme. At the other end, we have a nation like ours, isn't it, where laws are passed to promote sin and marginalize us, as I said this morning, from public life. You see, whether we are in northern Nigeria or literal Lagos in Thamesmead, the call of Jesus is the same. You like that? I, I thought you might find that funny. <laughs> right? We must stick with Jesus against the world. That's what Jesus is saying here. And this means, what does it mean for me to stick with Jesus against the world? What it means, it means that you need to stick with Jesus against your inner desire to be loved and accepted by the world. You must come, beloved, to a clear resolution this evening, if you haven't done that already, that I live for Jesus and his death to the world. For me is to live is Christ and that's it. You must have a clear resolution. I have to say, I speak to so many believers, and I was reminded of this again in chat with a different person. person We speak to many Christians. Getting this idea that coming to Christ means death to self. Wow. I think I'll be preaching it until I'm in my 90s. God willing, I've reached 90. Uh, It's not looking good, but I'm sure I will, right? God willing. But we need to get it. We need to keep preaching it because I think we we just don't get that. But you know, it's wonderful when you read of Christians who get that. And it inspires us, doesn't it? I'm thinking of Christians like Rosma Pendo, a Tusi Congolese woman who was a victim of mistreatment during the genocide in the DR Congo. You know, after her husband is executed, Rose is taken with nine of her ten children to a death camp where she spends 18 months suffering in horrible condition. 32 women and children put in one prison cell with no toilet. And Rose begins wrestling with God. Why have you made me a tussie? Why have you made me a woman? Why did you allow me to become pregnant right before this nightmare? And as time passes, Rose becomes overwhelmed with hatred for the four men who guard her prison cell. You know, but then something amazing begins to happen inside Rose. Something amazing begins to happen as she's in that death camp. Rose begins to remember the God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ that she once trusted. She remembers that Jesus is not only in charge of all things, He is a God who loves sinners. He is a God who loves her, a sinner. And she begins to persevere in trusting God. She's beginning to stick with Jesus in that death camp. And perhaps to her surprise, as she thinks of Christ, as she looks to Christ, she decides to forgive the four men who guard her prison cell. And then as the time comes for Rose Mapendo to deliver on that filthy concrete floor in our dark prison cell, 
The women around Rose, they take a piece of wood and they cut the umbilical cords. Cords. Why? Because Rose has just endured the pain of giving birth to twins. And then Rose stands everyone by naming her babies after two of the prison guards. Why has she done that? Why she wants them to know that because of Jesus, she's not their enemy now. She endured a terrible trial by sticking with Jesus. And because of Christ, she has died to herself to the point of even showing love to others. The story of Rose powerfully illustrates, doesn't it, what Jesus is teaching us in this verse. Rose stuck with Jesus. She put Jesus first before herself. And that enabled her to even forgive. She lost her life to Jesus. She took on the opposition of the world in that death camp, not by following the world, acting as the world expects, but by surrendering herself to the sovereign plan of God. She put herself at the mercies of Jesus. She surrendered to Christ in the middle of opposition. Beloved, where in your life are you facing opposition from the world? Why is God calling you to endure for the sake of Jesus? Where do you need to stick with Jesus? Is it at home? Is it at work? Is it in your local sports club? Well, Jesus is saying, stick with me, whatever the cost. Stick with me. Do not hold on to your life. Do not try and live for your, for your flesh and the cravings of the world. No, stick with me. Let my life live in and through you in that situation, as we said this morning. So that's the first thing. The first thing is stick with Jesus against your life. That's what it means to stick with Jesus. The second thing, and it's the final thing Jesus wants us to see here, is that you must stick with Jesus for your life. Why should you stick with Jesus? Well, for your, why should you stick with Jesus against your life? Well, you should stick with Jesus against your life for your life. We must keep following our Lord Jesus, not just for a short period of time, but for the rest of our lives. Because our life with God depends on it. That's why. Look at verse 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Will be saved. Are you puzzled by what Jesus says there? <laughs> The one who endures to the end will be saved. Are you not puzzled by that at all? Jesus is saying that we, unless we stick with him, we will, not, we will not be saved. We will not save our lives. We will end up in hell unless we continue the walk with Christ. That puzzles me. I hope it puzzles you. Because if you know your Bible, it raises a huge question. Is salvation not a one-off? Is not what the Bible says. Doesn't the Bible tell us in Romans 10 verse 9? It says this. You can turn there. You know it, I'm sure, by heart. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's in the Bible. The Bible teaches we are saved by God in an instant. It is a Past event, it's happened to us already. You have been saved if you've done what Romans 9 verse 10 verse 9 says. 
And yet Jesus here is saying, well, quite differently, to put it mildly. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is talking about salvation here as a process. And that raises questions, doesn't it? Is salvation a process or an event? Is Paul right or is Jesus right? Of course, we always stick with Jesus, don't we? Right? But it's in the Bible, so we have to stick with Paul, right? And the answer, that is the answer, isn't it? It is both. Salvation is both an event and a process. It's both a point and it's both um, a, um, a, a journey, we might say. We are saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. His blood is a ransom payment to God that sets us free from sin. And once you repent, you are immediately saved forever. This is called justification. God declares you right before him in an instant. At the moment you repented, God took your sins, past, present, and future, and charged it to Jesus. Our gracious God declared you forever. That's what the Bible says. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has gone, the new has done, doesn't it? At that moment of conversion, God gave you a brand new heart. And you are united with Jesus Christ. You live in God and he lives in you forever. So you are, you, you are justified, you are regenerated in an instant. And yet, you are also being saved by God. You are being saved because God is keeping you in him so that no one can snatch you out of his omnipotent hand. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says this. It says exactly this. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the power of God, period. The word has two people. It has those who are perishing as they are, and those who are being saved. God saving us now is called sanctification. It is a process of God keeping us in Jesus and changing us to become like Christ. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says this, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And apart from, and the part of how God keeps us, and transforms us, how God is saving us now, well, it's endurance. That's how God does it. How is God saving you now? He enables you to stick with him. He enables you to endure. That's what verse 13 is getting at. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But if you are listening very carefully to that verse, you notice that salvation there is not in the present tense, it's in the future tense. Endurance is in the present, but salvation itself is in the future tense in this. Because what Jesus is saying, the reason for that is that Jesus is saying, only those who finish the race, who endure to the end, who are kept on being saved, will be in the new heavens and the new earth. Only they will live with God. This is called glorification. So salvation is threefold. Right? But Rob and I love this, right? We will, in fact, we might say it's fourfold, but we're not going to go there, right? We were saved when we were justified. We are being saved, sanctified, 
and we will be saved, glorified. And the most important point to remember is that all of these things are done by the grace of God. We contribute nothing to any of this. God works in and through us. But salvation from the beginning to the end is all the, entirely the work of God. It's by grace through faith alone. You and I contribute nothing. That's not to say we're not involved. We do hear his word. We do place faith in him. We do repent of our sins. We are not bystanders to the work of God. But he works in and through us. It is all purely the work of God from A to Z. Now some hear this and think, if it is God who is saving us and will save us, then why bother? Well, we should bother first of all because God commands us to bother, right? He commands you to endure. You might say, well, God is doing everything. Why, why should I bother? No, God is commanding you to endure. And the way God is keeping us, if you like, from, in him, the point is the way God is keeping us in him is by obeying those commands. How does God keep us in Christ? By enabling us to obey those commands. Enabling us to obey the preaching of God's word today. That's how God keeps us in Christ. You have a responsibility to cooperate with the Spirit of God in changing you and enabling you to endure. You dare not resist that work. You must get active about it. But the other reason you and I must care that we respond to Jesus' command here to endure is Romans 8, verse 29 to verse 30. Romans 8, 29 to verse 30 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you get the point there? The obvious point is that if you are not enduring, if you are not enduring in your walk with Christ, then you are not being sanctified. And if you are not being sanctified, you are never going to be glorified. And if you are not glorified, then clearly you are not justified in the first place. No one loses their salvation. If you are truly converted in the first place, you will be glorified. You will move through those sequences. That's what Paul is teaching us. And what Jesus is saying to us is that we must stick with Jesus against our life in order to save our lives, right? <laughs> because that's what truly saved people do. If you don't endure, you will not finish the rest. And if you don't finish the rest, you are never converted in the first place. What is the evidence you're going to heaven? It is how you are living now, Jesus is saying. You must lose life to save it. Mark 8, verse 35. For whoever saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. We go to heaven by his grace, but that grace produces fruit. Salvation is a is by, faith, by grace, through faith alone. But the faith that serves is never alone. It always produces fruit. So, and the fruit is to stick with Jesus. Stick with Jesus for your life then. 
If you do not stick with Jesus, if you fail to persevere, you prove, as I've said, you are never saved. I just want to say the words of Jesus here are here to encourage us. <laughs> they are here to encourage us as we face deep opposition in our lives. Because Jesus is saying, if you are staying with me, if you are enduring, in spite of all the world, what the world is throwing at you, if you are still looking to him, if you are still loving him, if you are still growing in him, you are heaven bound. The fruits are there to encourage you, to bring greater assurance in your life. You are not running in vain, the Lord Jesus is saying. Whoever endures to the end will be saved, and you are enduring. And therefore, the work of regeneration must have surely taken place. Are you currently going through opposition, and you are patiently persevering and growing through that opposition? Can you look at your struggles and see that they have made you grow more and more to read his word, more and more to pray, more and more to fast, more and more to be committed to his people? Can you say that? Is the world putting obstacles in your path and you're still out there making Jesus known? Yes, it's not perfect. Yes, it's messy. But you can say it's the Lord's work. Well, if you are, then be encouraged, beloved. That is exactly how Jesus wants you to react to opposition in your life. Stick with Jesus for life. We live in a world where everything revolves around self, doesn't it? Promote yourself, entertain yourself, comfort yourself, take care of yourself, live for yourself. We work to be thought of as right, to be viewed as attractive. We want to win every argument, everything we want it to be about us. We want to get ahead and beat our competitors in the workplace. We are continually striving to be first, best, the best known, and the most loved. That is how human beings are. We want to be on top of the dang heap, we might say. So that's what the world is. It's, it's, it's going away. We indulge our desires to do anything that can meet our needs. And sadly, the sad fact is this. When we look at the church of God, many seem completely satisfied with a life like that. Many of us seem completely satisfied with living lives for our own sake. Many are running endlessly after the next temptation, the bigger house, the nicer possession, higher success, more comfortable lifestyles. But Jesus is saying, he's warning us here, that these things show a lack of contentment in Christ that raises huge question whether we are being saved, if that's what's driving our living. Because the reason we're running after these things because deep down we feel we cannot let go of the world. We feel we will miss out on this satisfaction. But Christ is, asking, is telling us here to do something unthinkable. He's asking us to be willing to say no to the one person we don't want to say no to. Do you know what the one person you don't want to say no to in your life? Yourself. And he's saying, stick with me against yourself. Against your life. Put me first in everything and stick with me for your life because it's by sticking with me that you will endure. So as I end, I just want to encourage you, encourage me, encourage all of us to examine our lives. If we profess faith in Christ, let us examine our lives. 
Where are we not sticking with Jesus? And let us urgently repent before him for his glory alone. Let us come before him and ask him to deepen our love for, for him above all things. And let us, allow, let us allow opposition in our lives actually to escort us to him, not from him. Let us, having, let us keep having Jesus for life. Amen.